Greetings, fellow food tech junkies and innovation nerds, and welcome to the new special series, The Green Spoon, an exploration into the art, science, and ethos of food that nourishes both our bodies and our planet. As we embark on this voyage, we'll unearth the layers of sustainable food practices and introduce the culinary maestros shaping the future of eco-conscious dining. Settle in as we played up knowledge and inspiration for a greener tomorrow. Welcome to today's episode. I'm thrilled to introduce our special guest, Chef Emil van der Stuck, the mastermind behind De Winkle restaurant in the Netherlands. Chef van der Stuck is not just a culinary artist, he's a visionary in the world of botanical gastronomy. He's redefining fine dining by shifting the focus from meat to a dazzling array of plant, herbs, roots, flowers, many of which are sourced from a nearby food forest. Emil's approach is not just about creating experimental vegetarian dishes. It's about telling a story with each creation and drawing from the inexhaustible well of his creativity. Grab your favorite drink, settle in, and let's embark on this journey of taste, sustainability, and innovation. Hi, Emil. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's... Yeah. It's always busy eh, when you have a restaurant. Oh, my God. I can only imagine. <laughs> well, but we'll manage. We have enough people working here, a lot of talented people. So um, I count my blessings. You are lucky to find people that you can depend on. It's, I think, very, very important when you run a business. Absolutely. It's the core. Yeah. For sure. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background about who you are and how you got started? Uh, well, where should I start? I actually started out studying to become a civil engineer, building bridges and roads. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I was not that good at doing this. Good enough, but I didn't really like it. And I was at the same time having a side job in, the, in a restaurant. So this is your classical story of starting in dishwashing during the study. And then over time, the dishwashing job became more serious. And then when I turned 21, I decided to quit my study and become a chef. And that for me was a big change. And I started focusing on working in the kitchen and become more professional in that. But I had no idea what I started, to be honest. And luckily enough, I found some teachers um, very renowned chefs actually that showed me the way and gave me the needed skills and knowledge to finally start my own restaurant, which was 12 years ago. And at that time, I already realized that many of the challenges we face as mankind uh, revolve around foods. It all started with the simple knowing that putting, for example, goose liver on your menu that it comes with a price that these animals are actually being treated very bad. Like that was the first question that came to mind. Why are we doing this? Or bluefin tuna, which is threatened by extinction. Why will I put it on a menu then? So, and over time, more and more big challenges we face revolve around food. So on day one of this restaurant, 12 years ago, I started by acting in line with more plants, less animals because it was crystal clear to me, actually a lot of positive effects when you use less animals and more plants. So this was in our DNA on day one. Didn't mean 
that we did not use any animal protein on our menu. We did use a little bit of fish and a little bit of meat. And over time, that became a garnish. And over time, we became a vegetarian restaurant. And since uh, over a year now, we only serve plant-based food. So no animal protein anymore. So we're a vegan restaurant. So the history of this restaurant has been an evolution moving from animal to plant-based diet. Um, and it's been quite a challenge, actually. And over time, we also got the recognition, which is interesting to see because this type of cuisine is not per se associated with the traditional institutes like Michelin, for example. Um, so that helps us a lot becoming an advocate for this story that we get the recognition as well. Because 12 years ago, we were actually almost bankrupt. Nobody was interested in what we were doing. So this is how things can change. Absolutely. Uh, so what sets this your restaurant apart than the sustainability plant-based scene that's out there? Uh, what's, I would say, what's your angle? What's, how innovative are you? Uh, what's your ethos? Um, I think we're innovative in the sense that we find new applications for uh, plants that we know and also plants that we don't know. I mean, that we can actually eat or that we don't know that actually grows in our climate. So that's why we call it botanical gastronomy. So it's on one hand studying which plants can actually grow in our climate zone. Because when you talk about plants, there are 12 climate zones in this world. Uganda, for example, is 12. Siberia is one. The Netherlands is climate zone seven. So the botanist that helps us actually looked for plants that grow in climate zone seven. And then you can travel the world and you come to places like Korea or Japan or Chile against the Andes Mountains, North America, Canada. Plants that grow there can also grow here and also the edible plants. So this made it possible for us to use a bigger collection than the plants that you would expect in this region. Uh, so that's the botanical gastronomy. And then for sure, because we do not know anything about Chinese mahogany, for example, being a vegetable, it's up to us in the kitchen to find applications. And because we do so, we are quite innovative in finding new flavors and, and new ways to form a plant-based menu, yeah. menu, the highest level. So this is, I think, the biggest reason that we stand out from the rest, because we, at this moment, still are the only one or one of the few that use this more wide perspective on the plant kingdom. Well, that's great. Also from a biodiversity standpoint, right? We all know that a very large percentage of our staple foods come from very few ingredients. So for, for someone like you to really look at a biodiverse, you know, menu, it's also, I think, a great educational tool for people, right? To know what's out there and to not just say, oh, let's do corn or whatever. No, no, the plant-based part is one side of the story, but you can focus more in, you can dive more in deep into what plants are actually, what possibilities they give you. And that brings me to the other thing that I'm a strong advocate for, an ambassador, is looking for more innovative ways of doing agriculture. Because yeah, like you said yourself, for example, in the Netherlands, half of the surface of this country, only two plants are planted. 
it's either corn or it's grass. And I don't eat the corn and I don't eat the grass. This is meant for animals to make mainly dairy. This is what the Netherlands is all about. So looking at it from a perspective of biodiversity, that's pretty poor. Yeah. So, and the other thing is that these plants are annual crops. So traditional agriculture is about starting with an empty field in spring, then a lot of input and big machines on fossil fuels. You need fertilizer and pesticides, uh, water, you need to weed. Um, and then at the end of the season, you have an empty field again. And this is not how nature works. And this is something I've learned from Wouter van Eck, and he is the initiator of the oldest food forest of the mainland of Europe. And a food forest is a way of doing agriculture, not based on annual crops like corn and wheat and grass, but based on perennial crops like trees and shrubs. And when you plant these edible perennial plants in relation to each other, they start to mimic a natural forest. And this is actually what nature likes to do in our climate. When we do nothing, eventually everything will turn into a forest. So when you use this principle of succession by designing it based on edible perennial plants, you can mimic the natural forest and it starts to grow in volume every year. The soil will get more fertile every year. And at the same time, you can harvest from it. So this is an amazing concept to produce food. So this is how we um, tend to give perennial plants a uh, main stage in our menus. That's amazing. So how does the food forest influence your menu or like, how do you do it? Yeah. So there are two things, it's the perennial plants, but also the perennial plants that grow in our climate. So there's a huge collection of plants that not automatically grow here, but are a common vegetable, for example, in China or in Korea, or so this collection of plants that we do not know of, we have to find applications for in our kitchen. So it's a huge influence in the sense that we uh, are constantly searching for ways of putting these sometimes unknown plants on our menu. And we try to find as much ways of making it into super delicious food as we can. So, and on the other hand, talking to Wouter van Eck, he, for example, tells me now we eat corn, we eat rice, potato, soy, and wheat for our starch, but in a perennial system, this not, this does not grow. So we have chestnuts instead or acorns. So it's up to us now to popularize the use of chestnuts. For example, if we would use a percentage of our bread recipe based on chestnut flour, then we obviously need more chestnut trees, which have, that will have a great impact on our uh, landscape. So this is something we uh, take into account and we are focusing, for example, in this case on chestnuts, knowing that this will change a lot if we make it more common. So in that sense, collaboration with the food forest has a lot of impact on our behavior. 
It should. I mean, collaboration in general has a lot of impact, I always say, on our food system in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about that, like, can you give us a little bit of an idea? What's a typical dish for you? Like, say chestnuts. Um, well, chestnut, we actually, yeah, this is a fun thing. I'm not expecting it to change the world dramatically, but we by accident discovered how we could make chocolate out of chestnuts. Oh, wow. Um, that's maybe a fun story because we use koji, the technique of making koji to make your misos, the soy sauce. It's actually the base of the Japanese kitchen. The koji is the enzyme that can break down protein or it can uh, transform starch into sugar. That's basically what it can do. It's a, a fungal culture that is capable of doing that. But when we were making this koji, to use it for miso and soy sauce, etc., we noticed also that it had a very floral uh, smell and it had the smell of even peaches and fruit. We decided to not treat it as an enzyme, which it is, but also as an ingredient that we start testing. We make koji oil and koji broth. And, uh, and at one point we roasted it and then it became really bitter and you could not eat it. It was like stone hard and we, left it aside, but luckily somebody was smart enough uh, to add some cream to it. Back in the days, we still used cream. And then it turned out to taste quite similar to chocolates. And since then, we make our own chocolate desserts, not based on cacao beans, but based on chestnuts. Uh, um, and it only it took me two or three weeks to figure out what we actually did, but we took the cacao beans out of the equation and replace them by chestnuts. So the fermentation and the roasting, what you normally do with the cacao beans, we now did it with the chestnuts and came to almost the same point, tasting it like like chocolate. So this is a fun thing. Uh, we're not trying to take away the business of cacao in, the, in Africa or in South America, but we want to popularize chestnuts. So using this story helps to make people more familiar. But outside that, we made also tempeh, we made waffles, uh, all kinds of pastry, because you can easily replace your regular flour with chestnut flour. And currently we're also focusing on acorns. So what does your menu look like? Yeah, we have uh, around 12 servings um, and we use from time to time tradition from other cultures like Japanese culture, for example, the making of, um, or Indonesian culture, like the making of tempeh. And most people associate this with soybean, but of course you can make tempeh out of a lot of ingredients like buckwheat or hemp seed or chestnut tempeh. So this is usually a starting point for us, taking a tradition from another food culture, making our own tofu, making our own tempeh, our own miso based on ingredients we find nearby. And then you get 12 small servings and we serve four different menus throughout the year. And it takes us three months of preparation every time for the, for the next menu. So there's a food technologist working here five days a week, full time to figure out how to prepare certain uh, dishes or certain components on the plate. Um, and figuring out how we can create plant-based alternatives for the things we know from the 
meat and dairy kitchen. So currently we have made cheese out of almond milk. And by law, it's officially not cheese. But when you look at it based on the principle of making cheese, it's actually cheese because we use the same cultures, penicillinum, for example, to create the cheese that we make. So yeah, and then the menu looks like 12 servings, small dishes, highly processed food, which sometimes gives me some criticism because people tend to think that plant-based cooking is about serving thinly sliced beetroots with a nice vinaigrette. But to me, the context is gastronomy and you need complexity, you need texture, you need different layers, you need an intellectual challenge and you cannot achieve it by just leaving the product as it is. You have to process it, if you ask me, not always, but most of the time into something super delicious. So most of our dishes are very complicated technically, but the reason is that we try to achieve a certain um, uh, fulfillment and satisfaction when you eat it. So that's a very long answer for a very simple question. <laughs> But a very interesting one. I mean, it's super true. I mean, I think that's what makes the best restaurants. It's really not just about a regular plate of pasta with a sauce on it, but it's really about building on flavors and textures and how all of that comes together in a creative expression. Uh, and I think that obviously that's something that a, not everybody can do, and B, it has to be, I think, more challenging to just do it with plants and do it with then certain kind of plants. Yes, and what we learn in school is that taste happens on, on your tongue. This is at least how I learned it at biology. You had five, uh, four flavors, uh, sweet, sour, bitter, salt. And different parts of your tongue would recognize it. And that's how flavor happens. But this is definitely not true. It's more like a cocktail of all your senses coming together in your head and has a psychologic component as well. So in gastronomy, we play with this. It's an, indeed about texture, the sound it makes when you bite it, uh, the, of course, the flavor, uh, but also visually what colors are used, what shapes are used. So the whole puzzle of creating a dish in relation to all the other dishes on the menu is what gastronomy, what makes gastronomy special. And that is the context in which I act. And that's why we choose to put so much effort in creating this food. Yeah, well, that's pretty amazing. So can you tell us what are like three of your favorite perennial plants to use in culinary dishes? Um, gastronomically, there, well, there's so many. It's okay. like asking what's your favorite child. Um, no, but there's some stand out, like Chinese mahogany, for example, a beautiful tree with feathered leaves, very rich in production. The leaves have a taste quite similar to roasted onions. So Wouter the initiator of the food for us, called it the French onion soup tree. And you can actually now order it online under that name, which is quite funny. Um, and because the tree grows very big, we decided to nut the tree every year. And while doing that, we noticed the extreme smell coming from the, the wood, the, the nothing of the tree. It created this amazing smell that, for example, gave the, raised the question like, what, 
would happen if we use these branches as it was like beef bones and we would make it into a broth. And eventually we succeeded and we could make a broth that actually tastes like chicken broth based on the wood of that tree. Wow. So for sure, Chinese mahogany would be in my top three of you have to use this tree on your menu. But a beautiful product, very delicate, is Japanese ginger. Mm -hmm. All year, it looks like corn. And at the end of the season, like around this time, it produces these very primitive flowers in the soil. And you can, you can harvest them and they have this really gentle ginger flavor and they look amazing. So this is a common ingredient in Japan and called Miyoka ginger. So definitely my top three as well. Yeah, and I have to mention chestnuts because this is the workhorse of our kitchen. We use it as a lot, a lot as a source of starch. Yeah. And this tree can grow four or 500 years easily. There's even a chestnut tree uh, in Sicily, I believe that is 2000 years old. So uh, this is a whole different perspective on agriculture. Yeah. Last, I love chestnuts. Last weekend, uh, I also went out in the woods with a friend and my dogs, and we uh, got a lot of chestnuts and uh, we then, I brought them home. I did a wonderful chestnut ice cream. I started to do some more on glaces. Uh, it's great to roast. So it's definitely one of my fall, winter fallback foods that I use also in uh, different plates and dishes that I do. And obviously Thanksgiving meal for me, it's a must. Luckily enough, you have a tradition still with chestnuts in Italy. Yeah. Uh, in the Netherlands, we do not have that tradition since the Romans introduced it. So uh, getting this back on the menu is actually uh, a good thing to do. Very yummy. So quick question. I mean, we talked about the food forest, perennials. We're talking about sustainability plant-based cooking, and obviously at the base of all of that, there's agriculture. So yes, what you are foraging and sourcing from the food forest, but also what you source from agriculture. How do you, let's say, combine all of these things and how do you then bring them back to the restaurant and into your menus? Uh, you mentioned four menus. What does that mean and how does it all come together. Now to give you a bit of insight, yeah. this is actually very complicated because a forest like the food forest does not give you what you need by just ordering it online. You have to anticipate it. Um, but first of all, you have to understand the main objective is to get people off their meat addiction. Mm -hmm. So to change the way we eat eat far less animal protein. That's objective number one. So yes, we put a lot of plants on the menu. Second, we would like to promote perennial plants. So it's not our main objective. And third, the plants that we put on the menu should be grown without use of pesticides, so organically. So in that order. But then this is a restaurant, um, which means that a couple of hundred guests every week that need to, that need to eat. And of course, we want to get it locally sourced, all our produce. But if at, at the end it doesn't work, for example, because the chestnuts from the food forest is only 150 kilos, we are not shy of getting the chestnuts from Corsica, for example, where they still have that rich tradition. 
uh, when we have fennel on the menu and the local garden does not supply it anymore, we're not shy of getting it from Italy. So the point is that the impact of the choice for ingredients is so big that it automatically compensates for sometimes using it from Corsica or Italy. The effect of that is minimized compared to not using animal protein. So objective number one is get people off their addiction of and a fixation on meat and dairy. And then of course you want to have it locally sourced organic and from a food forest. But if that doesn't work, we're not shy of getting it from elsewhere. So you also in, are in the context of running a restaurant. So I'm not um, so strict to myself in that sense. Because people tend to romanticize our story. I definitely never do that, but they come to the restaurant. They say, so you get everything from the food forest. No, no, we cannot do that because it's only two and a half hectares. Uh, and it's still growing. We have to come back in a hundred or 150 years to see the full grown system. This is like still like a baby forest. So that's not the point either. So we want to make impact in getting people to understand that there is an alternative. That's yeah. our main objective. So on the practical side, following the seasons, yes, but if needed to do so, we have to get it from elsewhere. We do because that's more important that people get away from their fixation on meat and dairy. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, the idea of the food forest is so cool and obviously it takes a while, but are you thinking about replicating it in other places as well? Like it'd be cool to have many food forests. Yeah, it's, it's part of the solution. That doesn't mean that the whole world becomes a food forest. That's not the point either. But there is already an organization in the Netherlands and Wout of Anek again, he's the director and they uh, support initiatives that are at least five hectares in size and that respects the ideas behind the food forest. So a lot of it becomes, it, it's becoming more popular now to plant food forest. So uh, a lot of initiatives, they call it a food forest, but technically it's not because either they use some chicken or that still run around there, or they combine it with growing onions and cauliflower, or they come up with their own creative idea, or it's very small, like the size of the backyard that are not food forests, They're very nice initiatives, but they cannot call themselves a food forest. So at least five hectares, and then the organization will support with the design and with finding the right plants. And uh, in that sense, over 250 hectares have been planted now in the Netherlands. So that's a start. Wow. So, I mean, I'm curious, obviously, as we mentioned before, we are going through some incredible challenges, growing population, climate change. These are all things that have a and will have a tremendous impact. And one of the solutions is to, to move away from intensive animal farming for sure. So how do we, let's say, introduce and make appealing plant-based cuisine to a broader audience so that more people understand that also plant-based cuisine can be delicious and doesn't go through that stigma that sort of like vegan is like bad and bland and so forth? Um, I don't think we're very, uh, I don't think many people like us that much. For many reasons, I think we do a lot of things um, 
that do not attract people. I mean, we're hugely expensive. We ask so much money for a meal, but it has a reason because 35 people work here, so we have to pay them. Uh, we take a lot of effort in finding this new application, so uh, people are needed to do so. And these people work normal work hours, so we need more people. Um, but we're hugely expensive. Uh, we're hard to find, hard to book. Uh, we serve a menu that is not very attractive for most people because there's no animal protein in it. Um, so this is only for the lucky few people that can pay for it and that are open for it. We are not going to change the world in that sense when it comes to the volume. And even if we would double the size of the restaurant, or we make 10 restaurants, this restaurant is not going to change it for the biggest part of the population. This is only for the elite that is um, uh, that has the income to pay for it, etc. But I was a bit struggling with this because I want to make more impact. But the impact that we make is different. We are here not to feed the world. Not going to happen with our food, but we're going to be inspiring others. That's the whole point. So recently there was a guest that compared us with Tesla. Like the car company started more than 10 years ago, building very expensive cars for the lucky few. And then over time, other car companies came with more clever solutions, made cheaper cars. And over time, it becomes available for more people to drive an electric car instead of one that uses fossil fuels. So I think this is our role that we are on the forefront with these crazy ideas that are very hard to replicate. But over time, I assume it will inspire others, mainly chefs to start with, to change their menu, to see what we are doing, applying it in their own kitchen, improving it, hopefully. And over time, it will find its way maybe to the supermarkets and to the, the menu that people have every day. So, um, at the beginning, I was a bit disappointed in myself that we did not have any impact, like so many meals per week for the lucky few. But now I understand a bit better our main role in this ecosystem of change is to inspire others, to show them the way. Young chefs, they do not have to be afraid. They can go this path. They will still get the recognition that they want. Um, so this is something... Uh, I feel a bit more comfortable with now. And how, I mean, I think a lot of chefs today uh, are going one or two ways. One is sort of that fine dining or very acclaimed famous chefs like yourself that want to democratize good food or like what you were just saying, to to inspire change through a very exclusive cuisine. So if you're talking to a young chef right now, what's the three biggest points of advice to to drive him forward, to inspire him, and to put him on the right path? Um, yeah, stick to the game plan. Because at first you might not experience too much success and even some resilience or resistance. So stick to the game plan is very important. Um, invest time in thinking about why are you doing this? Because if you do not have that clear to yourself, 
it's very difficult to stay motivated and to show this motivation to others because you have to inspire your fellow workers at first. So try to invest much time and energy in constantly figuring out why am I doing this? What are the main reasons? Uh, what are the implications for my business? Uh, how I'm going to inspire others? And then when you do that and you focus on that, you find talented people to do the work alongside you. And this was actually an advice that I took from Richard Branson. The third step would be get the hell out of there because you probably mess it up. So <laughs> the moment that you thought about the why am I doing this and the vision of your kitchen and you find the talented people to work alongside you, then after that, you better step aside because probably these people are better in doing the work than you are. So um, try to find out why are you doing it and stick to the game plan. Don't give up. And more on a business side, sustainability is not only about getting organically grown vegetables. It's also about um, making profit. So that means on day one, try not to invest too much money because this will be difficult when times are changing, the business is not going that well. You have to be resi resilient to those kind of situations. So think about growing in a more organic way, not like having the, the expensive cutlery and expensive plate where on day one, but try to build and build from a sort of basic start and then be sustainable in that sense as well. Always good advice. And why should we do all of this? Yes. Why should we do all this? Actually, because yes. I just advised everybody to think about it. Um, and I want to share a simple statistic that 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 stayed with me over time. And it's from uh, the book Regenesis from George Monbiot, the, uh, the, the journalist from The Guardian that's been writing about agriculture over 30 years now. And the simple statistic about land use, how do we use the land on our planet? Um, yeah, for example, what do you think? How Which percentage of land that we can use on our planet is in use for uh, urban areas like roads and houses and industrial areas. To give the, the context, urban, 1% of the animal, of the surface of our planet is in use for urban areas where we build stuff and roads and everything. Then agriculture, yeah, there you go. 38% of our land on this planet is in use for agriculture. 12% of our land is in use for agriculture that grows crops. Mm -hmm. Half of these crops go to animals. Yeah. Then the staggering 26% of the earth's surface is in use for grass-fed animals, livestock. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, like more than a quarter of our planet. And this, to me, was an eye-opener, like the simplest thing, the single biggest thing that we can do to save this planet is actually eat far less meat. It's so simple. And... And farming is the world's greatest cause of habitat destruction, the greatest cause of uh, global loss of wildlife and the greatest cause of global extinction crisis. So this is a huge motivation for me to help people get away from their fixation on meat and dairy. And it's mind boggling. And it's even unethical when you think about it. Oh my God, we live in a world that is completely backwards, I think, right? Like we keep hearing, oh, we need to find ways to feed 10 billion people while our population is growing. And we 
can feed 10 billion people. We already have all the solutions. We are just not using them. Yeah, the good thing is we can already do that about equal, uh, uh, it's about equity as well. Like, how are we going to move this food around? Okay. You know, we take everything. <laughs> of course. And equity is a huge, huge issue, as you pointed out. Other than food waste, which has staggering numbers, in a way gets me so mad sometimes because everybody talks about these issues, but it's like not, it's really not, uh, we don't do enough. Yeah, and the fact that we produce more and more food every year is not because we have more people, because we have more animals to yeah. feed. So the population of livestock is growing rapidly, more rapidly than the population of human beings. Um, so. But there's the good news. We can actually change all of this a single plate at a time. That's, that would be my, my philosophy. Yeah. Because when you start thinking about these numbers and you are being confronted with all these facts, because this is not an opinion and eh? this is scientific proof for the facts that are being presented, then you might become depressed easily. But to me, you have to turn it around and understand that we are all part of this ecosystem that we call change and we can all play our own role, whether it's big or small. And I don't believe in eco dictatorship in which we have to stay within our carbon boundaries. I do believe in democracy and I do believe in inspiration and setting an example. So there is hope and we all play our own role. So for example, you can now have this podcast with me. This is a nice addition in the process that we call change. And I can start cooking with plants, perennial plants, and any other person can think for him or herself about what can I do at this moment to be part of this ecosystem that we call change. Indeed. And really for me, a lot of people don't really see the correlation between food systems and climate. It's really not top of mind. Uh, it's what tastes good, uh, the cost and uh, quality ratio of things. But I think if we could advocate and inspire people to just do a couple of things, right? Like eating less meat or eating better sourced meat, better sourced vegetables, not buying single I use plastic water bottles, you know, really drill into people's minds the importance of, uh, of the correlation between food systems and climate. Amazing. Yeah, this is, like I said, the single biggest thing that we can do as an individual is eat far less meat. And the impact of that in a positive way is huge. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's so much to say about it, just <laughs> <laughs> about food in general. And at the end of the day. It's about delicious food because I can talk for hours, but if the food that I produce in my kitchen would not taste good or even better than the original, it's the end of the story. Nothing's going to change then. So we should still think about super delicious foods. That's very important. Especially at your level. Yes. And at any other level, because there are a lot of initiatives that, uh, uh, that are, uh, very nice, but at the end, they don't taste that well. So that's not going to help. Yeah. To taste good. Yeah. And I mean, that's also a lot of the issues with uh, a lot of the 
for example, plant-based innovations and solutions out there, whether it's burgers or dairies, if they don't have the same textures and flavor, if things don't taste good, nobody's going to buy them, right? Yeah. It's all about good food at the end and it should taste good as well. Absolutely. So tell us, where are you located? In the oldest city of the Netherlands, uh, the Romans were here a little over than 2000 years ago. It's on the east side, close to the German border, and the city is called Nijmegen. It's a relatively small city, very progressive. Um, and the university here, so that means there's a lot of progressive people living here, uh, which it brings a nice atmosphere. When I walk out of my restaurant, one kilometer from here, I'm in uh, a natural area. So a natural reserve. Um, and when I take my bike for 30 minutes, I'm also in a, in a big forest. Uh, so it's a beautiful place to live actually, Nijmegen. Um, it has been named one of the five most sustainable travel destinations in the world. Wow. It was a very strange list because the Slovenian Alps were on it, for example, <laughs> but also Nijmegen has been the green capital of Europe couple of years ago, a lot of bike paths, like any other Dutch city, you would expect they were also here. Um, yeah. And by accident, the restaurant started here. I used to live in Amsterdam before, but the love of my life comes from this region. So we decided to move here and this is why the restaurant is actually located here. Got it. Have you ever thought about opening another one in Amsterdam? No, 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 definitely not. One is enough. I'm. I'm already tired at the end of the day with one restaurant. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, you would not expect, but I'm a bit lazy as well. So I leave it with one restaurant. Yeah. Well, Keep it simple. Oh, it seems with like 35 people and a lot of work, a lot of creativity. One is more than enough. I, for me, it is. Yes. Really. It's been a tremendous pleasure. I am uh, really looking forward to meeting you soon, hopefully. And if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your cuisine, what should they do? Well, I'm not on social media, uh, but I do have email. <laughs> so you can send an email. Uh, the email address is on the website and, uh, and I'm actually the one who's reading it. So thank you so much, Emil. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Want to deep dive into food innovation? Subscribe to the Food Tech Junkies series. Tune in and listen to the industry's champions whose mission is to reinvent our future by collaborating and disrupting the status quo as a way to rebalance our planet and our daily lives. For more great food and ag tech content, visit our website at www.edibleplanetventures.com and don't forget to follow us on social media.